there's something incredibly satisfying about the feeling, like just the analog feeling of carving a pumpkin. I love it. So, Neil, uh, no pumpkins? What the hell, man? No, I, I don't carve pumpkins. Welcome to the Archispeak Podcast, the podcast for architects by architects, where we discuss all things about architecture. I'm Neil Pan. Each episode, Evan Troxel, Cormac Phelan, and me invite you in on the conversation as we talk about everything in the profession, both the good and the bad. Maybe you're considering a career in architecture, you're still in school, or you've been around the block more times than you'd like to admit. Join us in the studio as we gather around the water cooler and talk about this profession we call architecture. It's time for some Arcuspeak. Welcome to episode 74 of the Arcuspeak podcast. I'm Neil Pan. I'm Evan Troxel. And I'm Cormac Phelan. And before we get to this episode, let's uh, first get to our friend of the show. That's right. We got a new friend of the show, and that is my good friend, Drew Hecht. And Drew is in Riverside, California. He donated $50 to the Arcuspeak Fund, and we really appreciate it, Drew. Thank you so much. If anybody else would like to become a friend of the show and help us make this podcast, you can go to arcuspeakpodcast.com slash donate and donate anything over five bucks. Get your name read on the show if you want. And if not, just let us know. Uh, but we would appreciate any donations because they really do help make the show happen. Once again, you can go to arcuspeakpodcast.com slash donate and make your donations there. And then uh, were, were we going to uh, ask about t-shirts? I think we should. Yeah. Yeah. What do you guys think about t-shirts? Yeah, I guess what we want to know is uh, do people need new Arcuspeak podcast t-shirts? I mean, it's been a few, few years, two years. I don't two, know how yeah. long. It's been yeah, a while. Two years. I need to reorder one. I can't find mine. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a personal problem. It's under the sink somewhere. What color do they come in? Uh, only one color. The only color? <laughs> Black. Awesome. Well, we want to find out who's yeah, interested let's first. Do that. Let, let's get some feedback, and then we'll decide. Sounds good. Yeah. So. Holidays are coming up. You got to buy a gift for yourself because we know you're not going to buy the shirt for somebody else, right? So let us know if you're interested. And uh, so tweet us at uh, Arcuspeak A R C H I S P K on Twitter, and let us know if you think uh, you would like an Arcuspeak T-shirt for the holidays and for every day. It's basically something you could wear at any occasion, right? It is because you know it it's, can be. it's the cool thing about the, the T-shirt design that uh, Evan came up with. Is that it? Just says Arcuspeak, and even though it's our logo, it's, it's a conversation still, starter. It is. Yeah, that's how I see it. Speak to me in your Arcuspeak. <laughs> Whoa! All right, I think we better move on to the topic. Cormac's freaking me out. <laughs> Hello, talk by Arcuspeak. <laughs> what is our topic, uh, Evan? This is—it's your turn. Well, I wanted to talk about the future of architecture, and I think. There's a lot of ways we could talk about that, but and we have talked a little bit about it in the past. But I wanted to just kind of throw the question out there. Where do you see architecture, 
the role of the architect, uh, the profession, uh, the job in five or 10 years, not even that far out, but something that we can actually kind of tangibly potentially think about as a timeline, because I think that, you know, especially for people who are in school right now, it could be helpful to be thinking a little bit out into the future of what kind of profession you will be joining. Uh, and then for us who've been in it for a while or, uh, have been it for a, in it for a long while in some cases. Uh, I, th- I think architects are generally pretty bad about thinking about the future of the profession. And to me, it's more about what are we going to make of the profession that we want it to become instead of just waiting around for it to happen and then not liking what happens. And so I guess we'll just start simple and say, you know, I guess we could we could take it any direction we want. But what do you guys think? Where do you think we're going to be in? five to 10 years. I have a bunch of different kind of little mini topics that we could go off of this. But um, if, if you were just asked the general question, how do you think uh, the profession is going to look in five or 10 years? I look at it as two potentially different views. You know, it's five years may not necessarily be far enough out where there's a, like a wholesale change. It's going to be kind of a, almost business as usual with new tools and new technology. Whereas 10 years, I think you're starting to get into a realm where in, I've seen this a little bit in um, just the different firms that I've worked with. And I guess in the past 10 years that there's a shift in culture. And I think that's going to continue to develop, especially once we start pulling in, more and more, you know, new graduates, the you know, the millennial generation that, you know, is expecting a different work environment. And so they're helping reshape the way the uh, office environment is. And honestly, it's somewhat to the better because uh, you're slightly or starting to possibly see the change in not having to expect people to spend every waking hour in the office that they uh, are actually getting out and doing other things and being coming more involved with uh, other places and other things um, as part of either their own social or professional um, development. But I don't know. I mean, it's kind of a twofold question there between the, the, the five and 10 year change. Cause I mean, hell, if you think about it um, projects, I was just going to say that. Five years, that's a pro- That's a project. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> you, what I mean. Maybe. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yes. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, hell, I mean, if you think about it, the last few projects that I've worked on, each of those projects usually typically spanned five years yeah. of my professional life. And, and there's other projects that come and go in the meantime. But, oh, yeah. But yeah, it, is, you know, I mean, it is weird to think of it when you think of, wow, I started that project in 2009 and it just finished. Exactly. That happens all the time in in the the public and commercial world. Well, maybe not commercial so much. That's a fast time schedule. But public work, man, takes takes a long time. One of my favorite ones, you know, talking with your friends, and they're like the, you know, especially around in the DC area, you know, you've got all these people who are involved with public policy and everything else, and what they're working on changes so much so quickly 
um, depending on the political environment and everything else. And, you know, they're like, so, you know, Cormac, what are you working on? Like, um, such and such uh, school. Like, oh, cool. And then next year they ask you, hey, so what are you working on now? Same thing. Yeah. And they, they just keep asking you for the next few, you know, years, and it's roughly the same thing. And they're like, I, I'm curious to wonder, and I don't want to go side topic here, but I'm curious to wonder what some people think about what our job must be like when we're working on the same project for such a long time, whether or not that, wow, I thought architecture was glamorous. It sounds boring <laughs> to me. <laughs> it does sound boring, doesn't it? Working on the same project that, that long. Yeah. Well, something you said for, first off was was the technology. I mean, what do you guys think? Because to me, that is probably the the thing that changes the fastest. Even yeah. though, and it's funny to think about, but but when I was interning, we at the company that I was interning with when I was in college was I would call it fairly new to CAD. You know, CAD happened in the '90s, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and before that, it was all hand drafting and hand drafting. That's all there was before CAD, right? And then CAD came and is still lingering, but but it kind of, I guess you could say it came and went, and now we're we're doing BIM. So to me, the, the indicator is that there's this ramp that's this chart that's just taking off, and, right. and what it is is the amount of time we spend in the next technology phase gets shorter and shorter and shorter. And we're producing more and more and more stuff um, in our sets of drawings. And so I think that's this This is kind of one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this tonight was because are we even looking for what's next? Are we trying to decide what that is? Because there are lots of people out there who are still kicking and screaming going into BIM. Oh, yeah. But what's what's weird about that is that I guess they're treating it the same way they treated CAD, and then they're gonna, they're treating it the same way that you know I I don't want to change, but but it's inevitable that the change is going to happen faster and faster and faster. So what what do you guys see as being technology changes that are coming? And and I'm not talking specifics; I just mean generally to our profession. And it's interesting that you you bring it up in that kind of uh, illustration of progression, because I mean you know now. It's gone from the hand render when you're trying to give them that uh, initial idea of what uh, your project's going to look like, you know, and you give them a nice little watercolor and things like that. And those were great. And so now we're getting into the realm of, you know, the computer-generated renderings, the computer-generated animations and things like that. And, you know, this augmented reality and, you know, virtual reality um, goggles and everything else where... You're going to be able to have your clients, you know, put on a set of goggles. Um, we've got them in the office, which was really kind of cool. And uh, the guy who's got them at his desk, he snapped in um, his uh, cell phone and he had a video uploaded. So he just launched the video, snapped it into the um, to the headset, and I put it on and I'm like, looking around and I'm looking down the corridor and I'm looking out the window and I'm looking, you know, into some spaces and things like that. As the clients get more savvy in what technologies out there, it's going to then push architects to respond by providing all of this stuff, a lot of it up front, even before we flushed out the design, but as the eye candy. And well, and I think those tools are incredibly valuable to the design process yeah 
I can get in the building that I'm designing and say, whoa, I never even thought about looking at it from this direction. That's yeah. a complete mess. Or, wow, that turned out pretty nice. It actually gives us the ability to do that in a much more fluid way, in a much more natural way, and see things from the perspective that the end users are going to see them from, not the bird's eye, right? right? Not the flat elevation. Well, one, one great example was, is, um, so we have in just this, ex- this project that I'm working on right now, We've got where we've pulled all of the offices off of the exterior wall, and there's a corridor between the exterior wall and um, in the front face of a bunch of offices. And they're like, "Oh, well, you know, you've taken away my view." And you know, it was it, there was multitude of different programmatic reasons why we did that. Um, and it's a renovation of a of an existing building and. I'm not going to go into the reasons why, but so what we were telling them is that your corridor wall is going to be all glass. Then you're going to have the corridor and then you're going to have the exterior glazing. And then we also have these, you know, vertical um, glass fins and they're going, oh, I'm going to, you're going to obstruct my view and I'm not going to be able to see out there. And, you know, you're just taking away all of my natural light and everything else. And, you know, we, after going through the whole trying to get them, you know, we're t- trying to explain to them what they would see and feel that, you know, once we kind of popped it into the... Yeah, or you could just show them. We just showed them. Yeah. And it's just like, here, here's what you will see when you're looking out the window of your office. And it was a big shift in it. Like, oh, so exactly. these fins you keep explaining to me about aren't going to obstruct my view and oh i will get all this natural light and i will have all he goes and it, it it feels far more open and even a bigger office than i actually have you're like exactly and that's it's hard to talk through though right so these tools do have benefits in that way i mean yeah it's it's the visualization side of it i think is a no-brainer and a lot of that's coming from visual effects and uh, video game industry right so People are seeing this. It's in their house. It's in their living room. So I think that it's a natural bridge to go into architecture and for them to even expect that from us. And I also think that that kind of thing is going to be expected a lot more often. So where exactly. where clients, you know, we kind of roll our eyes when they say, can you give us an updated set of renderings <laughs> in CDs, right? And you're thinking, oh, I've got this real heavy Revit model or ArchiCAD model or any kind of BIM. It doesn't matter where you've got tons of information in there that's meant for contract documents. And then you don't want to prepare a rendering from that because it's so heavy and clunky. And and, we, and it's just not a service that many architects offer. But again, I think this is where things are changing in the future. And, and Neil, I don't know if this is happening in the residential world, but I'd, I'd like to hear if you think it is or not. But Clients are always asking us for updated renderings. We want to show oh, the yeah. board. We want to show our teachers. We want to show. We want to show them what it's looking like, and because they they see it like it, it's neat. They do see it as a continual process, and they want to see the latest, and they want to see the refinement, and they want to see the colors, and they want to see the materials. And a lot of times, our answer is no. That's not in our contract. It was never in our contract to provide you with. And so now we have to actually find ways. I think. I think it's stupid that we don't. We need to find ways to show them what they want to see because yeah. it makes a happier client. It, it helps them trust us more to know that we are doing exactly what they asked for. 
And so one thing that we're really experimenting with is real-time models where we can spit out a file and send it to them, and then they can fire it up on their computer and walk through it and look wherever they want. And I, and there's lots of ways to do that, lots of different software to do that, but it really should be easy for us, and I think it's just going to continue to get easier to spit these models out, uh, and they'll be able to just walk through them. I, I think with that, and it was... Same thing with BIM. When BIM was coming in, and BIM kind of produces documents and produces information differently than CAD did and differently than hand drafting did, whereas CAD was more hand drafting on the computer. You know, you still did the same process, the same length of time. DDs was this long, CDs was this long kind of thing. Way more foreign looking to a layman, right? Right. And so now it's actually a lot different because you're putting so much information in early. And I I think one of our biggest problems right now currently is our contracts are still kind of written in our billable billable period and our billable percentages are still somewhat written around the way we used to do things and not really the way we do them now. And really, what you're talking about is kind of the next step where you do have this kind of ongoing change in renders and, you know, this, this, what you were, you, you, the real time, real time visualization. A, a way to do it where it, it's a lot more painless for us. Right. Because right. renderings and are, I, can be very painful. <laughs> and, and I, th- and I think honestly that because we do have these tools now that are able to kind of create all of this visual tools so quick, well, I will not say so quickly. Yeah. Oh, so quick but, and easy. Exactly. Just push the, push the easy button. But I think what we need to do is we need to learn how to build that in as part of the tools and be able to learn how to sell it to the client as part of the contract negotiation so that rather than saying, well, you know, this is going to be additional services, it's really something that's there for them to expect. Are you seeing that in residential, Neil? Well, I want to go back to what Cormac was just saying. I think one of the challenges that I remember when we first started transitioning out of um, hand drafting to CAD was, um, or I should say maybe there was that and then just the plotting aspect. I mean, um, just producing a set of prints used to be very expensive and time-consuming, and now we can just spit these things out on large-format laser printers, and and it's you know the cost is is much cheaper and it's much faster now. And I do recall a time that there was um, you know we would bill for that, and we go oh well okay you want uh, you know additional sets or oh you want these prints, um, and it would be like uh, you know we're we're going to charge you extra and then slowly that just kind of went away clients weren't going to buy that anymore it's like no i need a set and you know it's it's included or something right and so it's charging for plotting when it seemed to go away it hasn't gone away yeah. completely it- um and we still can charge for it but i think that technology wise um that there's an expectation uh, that our clients have, and that expectation continually changes. Um, and so as they see things more in 3D, um, I think the, 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 the biggest challenge that we have, and this unfortunately is to a certain extent in, out of our control, but the tools that we use are out of our control. I mean, we're, we're not 
creating these programs. We're not creating Revit. We're users of these these types of programs, these BIM programs you guys are talking about um, or that we're talking about. Um, and we don't have any control over what we need. I think that it would be very Wait. beneficial to the the software companies to work closer with architects and not just like through a beta period, but, you know, really get us involved and get practicing architects involved in, in developing these tools because the tools are not developing fast enough to meet the needs of the architect as we move forward. I mean, within five or 10, you know, 10 years, 15 years from now, what you guys are telling or what you guys are explaining, being able to, where I think, the future is, is putting on those goggles, and maybe it's even beyond the goggles at some point, but walking through a 3D model, that's going to be your presentation. You know, we, right now we, you know, Evan, you've shown us examples uh, of, you know, just great renderings of, of designs that you've done on the computer, and, you know, those go up in your presentation or pinned up on the wall. Um, that's today. Ten years from now, we're going to be completely walking through those. Well, that's you know, we'll, what that's we'll, what we're doing now. Actually, I yeah, think that that kind of thing is more and more ex- expected, and it's expected, and we won't be able to charge extra for it. That's the thing. I I think well, we're in a transition time. You know, maybe we can charge for you know. Oh, okay, we're going to generate twenty five. Uh, perspectives for you and spit those out and have them all nicely rendered and maybe today we can charge for that 10 years from now no you're it's going to be what's this is expected and so you had asked me about well i'll, I'll let you jump in Corey. you but i mean that that's kind of where i see technology wise well but back in the day things are going to go back in the day when we were doing hand renderings and things like that those that's what was expected and so we built into our contract that that bit of work that we were going to do the visualizations for the project mm-hmm. and all it really is is it's just a different form of visualization for them to understand what we're trying to do and try to give them for the project and we just need to learn how to figure out how that's billable. Well, let me, let me well, give you, you an know, example. In, in 1990, going back a few years. Sweet uh, Jesus, that's old. Yeah, I know. Probably before some of our listeners were born. So anyway, the, the point here is, is that when I, in a design class I had, and uh, we were the first design class at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo to use Archicad in a design class. We had four workstations, and, and Graphisoft was nice enough to uh, donate four licenses of the software. Anyway, long story short, our professor at the you know at the time bef- before that class, you know, you might be required to okay, you, you for your presentation, you got to show here here's a uh, you know a floor plan, maybe an elevation, and maybe a, a perspective of your project, right? Um, and sometimes you know a model or something like that. In this class, it was like, okay, um, we're using this software. I want you to produce 25 perspectives of your project. And, you know, mind blown at the time, right? It's like, oh, my God, how am I going to do that? Well, wow, I've got this tool that once I've modeled this building, I can look all around it. I can do all the perspectives you want. Right. And I think that's, that's where we're going to 
that's you know, Evan, you said you're doing that now. I think yeah, we're there. the tools need to get better though, so that you can generate the really nice type of renderings as you're doing the project. So it's not like you stop. I think one of the challenges that we have is I mean a lot of people use SketchUp and SketchUp does some really cool stuff, but then people like leave it in the dust and then they move on and and uh, you know create the project in yeah, another that, program, right? To create CDs for that project. That's a lost bit of product productivity right there. Absolutely. That, and that gap that's between... not gonna that that can't continue, right? We can't stay productive and, and profitable <clears throat> by throwing away something that you've done just so well, now we're gonna do CDs. We've gotta bring it together. And I know SketchUp is moving, they're trying to turn their program into something that can generate CDs. And I know that just, you know, with Vectorworks and Revit and Archicad is the three, you know, big ones. Um, they're moving the, uh, the other way. I mean, they've, you know, well, I shouldn't say Revit's moving that Revit's always been that way, but some of the more 2d programs are incorporating the 3d and it's well, bringing it all in. See the, the thing about Revit versus SketchUp is, Revit kind of demands you to go a little too far too quick, where SketchUp's just kind of fluid and you pushing and pulling and extruding and, you know, changing shapes. No, let me just grab the, you know, ridge of this and kind of shift it this way or drop it down to a different pitch or whatever. And, you know, you're it's quick and playful. And that's where... I call it fluid, yeah. Yeah, Revit needs to be a little more like that, Right. Um, well, if you subscribe to the everything in one tool camp. Yeah, exactly. In a way, that's kind of where we, we have to be that way. We have to have a tool that we can do what you had talked about earlier. But then the tool owns you, well, <laughs> as we see. Yeah. Well, but, no, it's, know, is it any actually, different than pencil and paper before, right? I mean, you know, I don't know. It's, it's Neil, actually, what, what, what your what should happen in it and it is happening is that all of these programs need to talk to each other a little bit easier and a little bit more fluid so that if you do build you know because there's a lot of times that when you're building a sketchup model you're faking it you're there's you know it may or may not what? Really? even though you can draw to scale and even though you can like you know put a dimension on something and it actually be pretty close to being right. SketchUp encourages bad habits. That's all. SketchUp encourages bad habits. Whereas if you can, if it's something that you know, you're going to transition a SketchUp model into Revit and start building off of Revit, you know, and applying some of the tools and things to it, you know, maybe it will change the habit. And actually, Evan, I'm glad you said that because that's the problem. It's not the tools, it's the habit of the well, it's, user. It's the person, yeah. I mean, and I don't fault SketchUp for that. I mean, really they oh, make no. they make bad geometry look good, but Yeah. Uh, I and, and I think we're getting wrapped Architecture, up Architecture making bad geometry look good. <laughs> I think we're getting too wrapped up in this stuff. I mean, I, I think what I'm interested in is okay, so where do we go from here? Because there's uh, like like just to give you an example, why do we deliver a set of documents? printed on paper to contractors that's going to change how they build so i think that that is a perfect example of something that could change and i and i i see it as a gradient i don't see it as a a wholesale shift as like you go from a set of printed documents to just a model 
but I could see it going from where it is now to still doing all the sheets, but just delivering a file so that they actually have both to refer to with a layer on top of that, that allows communication to happen, to flow between the architect and the contractor that is not over email. Yeah. These are the types of things that I'm, I just want to pull out the crystal ball and say, okay, what if, what if we could do something different than how we're doing it now? How would we want it to be? Can I, can I share a conversation that I had yesterday about my crystal ball? Yeah. Okay. So we were talking about, you know, this practically this very uh, conversation, um, and, uh, you know, we were talking because uh, somebody had the VR goggles on and they were, you know, doing their thing. And I was just like, okay, so here's my vision of what I would love to see. And I, I think it kind of scared him. He's like, oh, no, that's too that's too far, too fast kind of thing. And and really, to be quite honest with you, I think we need to be too far, too fast. And, and then because pre-show you were talking about how um, the – animation industry and in you know movie making and all these other ones they're already forward thinking they're trying to push yeah just watch just watch a director's commentary or watch any of these websites that chronicle how they make a movie and they're like every single time i guarantee you they say we've never done this before and we had to figure out a new way to do this yeah exactly how often do architects do that (laughs) like you said we're always struggling to find a way to pull details from other projects that we've already drawn and well, and, so but, and contractors are the same way, though, right? It's like, oh, I built it this way. I've done it this way for thirty years. Why do I need to do it any differently? Yeah, and exactly. I'm talking, uh, and I'm right. talking more about the process. Yeah, go ahead. All right. So here, so here's what here's how I was uh, portraying the future of architecture and construction, because you're right. We can't divorce the the idea of the two. They've got to come. They both have to like grab a hold of each other and drag each other forward because there's no there's no way that we can change without them changing. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, I started giving them this 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 idea of my idealized future is very much a Minority Report kind of um, you know approach where, and if you guys are familiar with Minority Report, the movie, um, you know, here you had Tom Cruise and he's standing in front of this you know kind of big huge screen but it's this transparent screen where everything's kind of you know heads up virtual reality and he's moving it around with his hands and shifting things around and all this other stuff and here i'm you know trying to explain to him i'm like you know picture this so here we are in a you know projected 3d building and we've got all of these you know like um and maybe i'm you know thinking a little too current on the user interface, but you know, you've got like, you know, these doors over here in this door schedule and you can like grab a hold of a door and drag it over to your wall. And, you know, you basically you're like moving your hands and it works perfect for me since I talk with my hands anyway. So <laughs> it's know, good but, for us sedentary, uh, sitting at a desk all day types too. We get a little bit of a workout. This it, way. It, would, it would completely change it, but you know, you, take your hands and you know you you like pinch your fingers together and you like drag a wall and you grab a door and you put it in there and you say okay no no it needs to go over to the left a little bit you know over to the right you know because a lot of times you know when we're designing you know we may come up with you know some party and we want to you know kind of develop a concept this way or that way but a lot of what we do and or maybe it's a lot of what i do is more design intuitively. What feels right? What looks right? You know, what does is this the right balance between this and that? And seeing it 3D real time, 
is great. It would be, you know, fantastic for me to like be sitting inside the room, looking at the room, saying, okay, you know, I want to do the bass this way. I want to do the ceiling this way. I want to do that that way. Then the next step is here we are. We've got this awesome development of the 3D printer. And you, you're hearing more and more of people experimenting with 3D printing construction. So we're getting to the point where we're you know, going to be this one guy sitting in this kind of like, I don't know, console of virtual reality where at the end of the process he can say, print. And he's printing the building. You are the master builder the, again. Exactly. You're, you've, <laughs> regained, you've regained control over virtually everything that you can do. And you're literally printing the thing. And, you know, it's automated assembly or, or you know, whatever. But honestly, that's where. And even if it, you know, you can go down to like where, when I read an article, and I'm, I'll see if I can find it uh, for the show notes, but, you know, where they were 3D printing um just uh disaster shelters and i i thought oh this is a great idea you know you you basically all you're doing is you're flying over you know building material in the form of like uh concrete and it's basically printing it you're you're sitting at a console and you're saying okay i want 50 50 dome shell uh, concrete dome shelters for you know all of these people and you print them out and Boom! There, like it starts going up and starts printing. You know these uh, these shelters. I mean, I, I know I'm kind of making it a lot a uh, lot easier uh, sounding than it really is, but you know I, I'm thinking that that's the way. That's that's the way it is. That's the way it should be. Um, it, uh, have you guys seen Tomorrowland yet? Yeah. No. So Tomorrowland. It, um, there was a scene when they go when they go to Tomorrowland and they're printing like a bridge and some, um, some structure and stuff and they're 3d printing it. Yeah. So people are thinking, you know, the movie makers are thinking about how the future is being built before the architects and the, you know, the contractors are thinking about how to build it. Cause we're too rooted right now into the reality of now. This is how we do it now. There is no other alternative or faster way of doing it now because we don't have the artisans or we don't have the technology. But I think you're right, you know. Or we don't do the the construction so we don't fully understand how it's going to go together. Or There's so many aspects. Right. I I guess in a way it's the re-merging of the trade when it split, whenever that split happened, of architecture and construction that master builder well it's it's and it's again it's one of those transitions that happened over a long period of time where architects were determined to take on less and less liability (laughs) and so you're slowly pulling away from liability all that stuff yeah we need to stop being afraid of the consequences of what will happen. I mean, you know, you think about it. I I listened to an an article or a, uh, a podcast with, um, not, Elon Musk, but the other guys that are talking about the Hyperloop, mm-hmm. you know, that are the actual developers of the Hyperloop. And they're like, you know, look, you know, we're not going to wait around for people to say that it can't be done. We're 
actively pursuing investors, and we're going to have a working model. It's only going to be, I think it was like a five-mile stretch or something like that. It's, um, and we're building it, and it's going, you're going to have passengers on it in, I think it was like 2018. And we're going to show people that it can be done. Rather than letting somebody else tell us that it can't be done, we're going to just go ahead and do it. Yeah. Look at look at SpaceX or look at any of these companies that are pushing, pushing, pushing. They're going to be the first ones to have passenger trips to the moon or mining on the moon or whatever it is. Because you're right. They're saying, stop telling us that it can't be done. We're just going to do it. And then the prices will drop and then someone else is going to do it. We're going to push. We're going to compete. We're going to do all these things because of their passion to do the thing. Right. And, and all of us in architecture are saying we're passionate about architecture, yet what are we doing to push it forward and become the profession that we want it to be instead of regressing into this, you know, is, is architecture even going to be a thing in the future? Right. 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 It, or is it just going to wither away? And is it just going to be optional for people? I think that we have to decide that how important it is and because no one's going to do it for us. I, I have one more technology related thing, and then maybe we can talk more on that line of it um, as far as like the overall profession. What do you guys think about having tools? I, you know, when you were talking, Cormac, I, I was thinking if if this stuff is coming together under your fingertips or whatever, and, and you're, you're putting you're pulling pieces together and you're pulling doors and, you know, there's always like this layer of complexity that that is definitely why architects are in business. Right. It's called the building code. And so. What if there was a set of tools that were informing you, basically making decisions for you? How okay would you be with that if you were able to plug in a program and it basically gave you three different options or maybe just one option of an optimal layout and things were code correct? Or what if you know later on in the project when you are moving things around, it actually t- tells you you can't do that? Uh, Eben, if you move that door, it will be out of compliance. And you your call yourself an architect? Will, you know, <laughs> I think that'd be great, actually. No longer well, that's, be valid. that's what I'm wondering. Like, how, how okay would we be with giving that ability to an AI, you know, an artificial intelligence or a computer or whatever you want to call it, to make certain decisions for you to... You know, number one, speed up the process to number two, make it more error proof, um, you know, so on and so forth. My uh, response to that is woo damn who. I, I think it's yeah. inevitable. I, I it, honestly it, don't it, think it we're even going to have a choice. But I think there's a lot of people that's going to scare the crap out of. Well, there still needs to be the the base knowledge of the architect. I mean, basically, it's our job to get around the interpretations of the code in a lot of respects, right? If you think about it, when you're designing, let me give myself an example instead of you know putting somebody else in, in the place. When I'm designing, I'm always thinking about, okay, if I do this, if I do an open atrium, what is that going to mean for my fire rating? What is that going to mean for what my requirements are going to be for wall types and construction types and all these other things? Yeah. And so I've got all of that layer and, you know, we, we're always constantly updating it with the new changes in code and things like that. But we're always thinking about that as we're designing. And if we're not, we should be because that's our job. We should – every move, every doorknob, every height of a lavatory, 
all has a constraint to it, which is the code, which is ADA, which is this or that. It should be that the AI is an assistant to your knowledge that you already have instead of yeah, it's Jarvis. in for the knowledge that you should have. It's Iron Man and Jarvis, right? Exactly. I mean, you know... Uh, it's a know, trusted advisor. Yeah. Exactly. You know, he's he's there to kind of say, are you sure you want to do that? If you do that, you know, this is what it's going to mean. And in fact, actually, you know, what would be it's what's kind of cool is you also plug in the um, the overall budget. And as you're doing things, they say, well, you know, I mean, if it, it, taking into account everything else that you've done on every other square foot of this building, if you do that. You're busting the budget. You know, you're either going to have to do that and you're going to have to come back. You know, so now you're now you have like a real time dialogue between, you know, essentially your construction manager. You know, you've got a construction manager AI that's kind of helping you out like, you know, yeah, but if you do that, think about all of the machinations of the uh, structure that you're going to have to do. Are you you talking about Clippy again? Is we going to get little (laughs) Clippy up in the window bouncing around? You know what? I love and miss Clippy. Oh, my God. You did not say that. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) <laughs> it was hey, the only reason yeah. to have a computer is to like well so, guy up. so i think that it's in, it, it it's like you you start thinking about this stuff and you i've seen the question come up is should i learn to code you know like students should i learn to, and so and so you're now now you're just thinking out loud and you're like architects would be stupid not to hire students who know how to code and write stuff like this because there's there's two parallel things that have to happen the tools have to be made and the data has to be put into it. And then the thing can start making decisions. And so, number one, it's a huge amount of work to write the tools. But number two, the tools don't do anything without the information in it. And that information is not just constraints from the code, but it's also years and years and years of architects who have experience in doing all these things and how that experience is built up over time. And experience from contractors and construction managers and all these things that go in so that we do own the entire process and not just a piece of it. Right. So, so what do you think about how this further beyond the technology, beyond just kind of the day-to-day stuff, what, what do you guys see the actual profession being like? I mean, we could talk about licensure. We could talk about the road to licensure, what is it going to be like? Because, I mean, I was just thinking, my mind was wandering the last five minutes, like, how stupid is it that we just test people on how to take tests? Because, you know, when you're going through these tests and you're reading these answers, you're like, my answer would be E. It would be, I would look it up on the internet, right? (laughs) We were having a conversation, talking about licensure, talking about lead certifications and things like that. And, at the end of the day, a project is fully collaborative, or a successful project is fully collaborative. I and would call my engineer, right? And he's just like, <laughs> okay, so I only need a few numbers is what I need to know if I need to work that out. And it's a phone number. Right. It's the phone number to the engineer that I can sit there, and we can both pull it up on our screen, and we can talk about, hey... You know, you've got your ductwork running through here. This is an existing slab. You, did you understand that you're running through some concrete beams that we can't modify? 
And they're like, okay, well, okay, so let me conference in the structural engineer. Let's have a dialogue between the three of us. And let's see what other options are out there for us to be able to get that ductwork, which unfortunately really does need to be in that location. What is the other options? And then all three of us have the conversation and the dialogue going on about what are we doing? What do we need to do? What can we do? What can't we do? And those are the things that... We really, those are what we should be tr- uh, testing people on is how effectively can you use your, your resources? I, well, I think that's a big part of it. And I, I, I'm wondering what does, what does that process look like in the future? How are we going to train people to be ready for the future? Not because I feel like we're training people for the past of architecture, not the future of architecture, not even the present of architecture. Well, yeah, that's actually a good question uh, because you know I was I was thinking about you know was when I was talking about the resources and using the resources and stuff. Think about how we came into the profession and you know the Swedes catalog was there and you know if you wanted to learn about a particular item or you wanted to use a particular item or whatever. You'd pull out the Sweets catalog. You'd start flipping through the pages, and you'd, you know you'd have these big green books that took up half of the office. And yeah. They would be, you know, you would see uh, sticky notes uh, sticking out of the edges of them because you've tabbed every other thing, and you know there's so many tabs that it's kind of become pointless and stuff. And and I was thinking about how I don't see anybody cracking any books anymore, but uh, you know. I also sort of don't see in a way how if I pull up um, my Google Chrome and the reason I use Chrome um, just like, you know, Safari and all these other ones is that the same tabs that I have bookmarks that I have at home, I've got at work and stuff like that. And I'm looking through and all of my tabs right now or all of my bookmarks start off with international building code and then it goes on to rcat and then it goes on to a couple of other resource um uh websites that i can use for code and ada and things like that those are all so i've got them all bookmarked and i'm ready to go and i can click on them and and if i have a question about something that i'm trying to do i can pull up the resource almost immediately there's that shit that there's and I don't know how to explain this properly, but we're we're missing that portion of the mentorship where we're training them how to use their resources and how to like look for things and, and search for things. I mean, it was I, I guess the this is the digital version of how to be self sufficient. Well, well, yeah, but this is the my my bookmark uh, bar is a digital version of what of how I was raised by when I walked up to my dad and said, Hey dad, can you tell me how to do this? Look it up. And so I was always told to look it up. And if I couldn't find it, then he'd sit down and he'd kind of say, or if I found it, but I didn't understand it. Or it has two meanings or whatever. Yeah. Help me figure out which is the appropriate context for this. Yeah. But he always kind of forced me to look first. Yes. You know, look for the answer before you ask the question kind of thing and <laughs> and, and go through the effort of trying to fi- figure it out for yourself because ultimately at the end of the day, you're the one who's doing the thing. Yeah. I, I, so. When somebody comes and says, how, how do you want this? And I would say, well, what would you do? 
You know, it, I, I yeah. always I always want to put it back and say, because I don't want you just to come open-handed or empty-handed, I should say. Yeah. I want yeah. you to come with, well, here's what I thought. What do you think about that? Uh, and, and so then we can have a dialogue about it. So it's not just a, I told you to do this, but it's we, fi- we did it like this. In, in both of you guys, I know that I'm sure you guys are exactly like me and how you learned how to develop this kind of like mental Rolodex of construction details and things like that, that kind of then, you know, help you with your design process is you've sat down with contractors or you've been out in the field enough that you look at how things are going together or you talk with them and say, you know, and the contractor will come up to you, especially during RFI processes and things and say, uh, your drawings show that you want this, but you showed all these details that do this. I don't, I don't know if you noticed, but if we build it the way you drew it, it won't be exactly the way you want it. And so you have the conversation with them. It's like, okay, so now you know what I want it to look like. How do you build it? In the conversation that you have is... One, a way to kind of work through the problem that is immediately at hand, but it's also a way for you to develop your own resource tools of saying, okay, the next time I do a situation like that, now I know a better way to do it, or I know the current construction way of doing it, or however you want to explain it. And so you're creating that, again, that that mental Rolodex of resource. And that's... Where where I was going with it is that that gap that we have right now of of all of the new uh, people coming in when we've got all of these older guys leaving we need to close that gap and and, and be a little bit more mentoring instead of just saying well you know figure it out Revit's got you know some details in it or uh, hey hey dumbass how come you can't figure that out right it's instead of yeah. there's like this mentality of uh, if if you don't know, I shouldn't have to tell you kind of a thing. So so really, if you want to ask, you know, where the future of the profession itself should be is a reconnecting with the um, the mentoring process, because I think that what we did and, and correct me if I'm wrong, and especially, Neil, since you were kind of on the wave of of this as it was coming in is with the ease of computer-aided drafting and BIM and everything else now, we sort of disconnected with, we just have people kind of crank, clicking and cranking. Click more. <laughs> click more. Talk less. Click, click more. Click more faster. And um, we, you know, whereas when you were on a drafting board and there was, you know, your project manager was right next to you on a drafting board, you could go over there and look at how he's doing it or, you know, watch the process as it goes on. Now, what we need is we need to, you know, have that process where we're, you know, connecting back and forth with the experience base and being able to, you know, reconnect old knowledge and new knowledge because, you know, the it wouldn't have been so, um, we wouldn't have been so disconnected from each other if, you know, like back at the drafting table, you were able to, you know, like now project managers don't like to click. They don't like to work on the, on, on the, um, 
programs that we have on hand. And so all they're doing is they're like the little puppet master kind of orchestrating, you know, you need to do this, you need to do that. I'm going to go set up a meeting. I'm going to, you know, get on a conference call. I'm going to do this kind of thing. Professional email. Yeah. And so you're kind of like, (laughs) exactly. So you're kind of like distilling all of these little parts and pieces and you're going to do this part. I'm going to do that part. You're going to do this part kind of thing. Instead of everybody kind of like getting all of that knowledge kind of merged together and that's what, you know, kind of like doing it by hand, you had to learn everything. So we sort of kind of need I, to... I think it's inevitable. I think people are going to get more and more diversified. It's location-wise. Uh, yeah. And, and so that that communication, collaboration stuff needs to get... The tools need to get better. I mean, they're out, they're already out there. Just we don't, we don't use them, right? Everybody still relies too much on email. But um, that stuff is going to be super important to maintain those strings throughout the project so that so that people have the ability to share their screens whether it's with somebody who's sitting near them or somebody who's on the other side of the country or whatever because we totally have the ability to do that right but we just don't do it i don't think people do it enough perfect example is my current project that i have people in london people in copenhagen people in st louis people in new york people in up in canada and us in baltimore and we're all working on this project, and I've gone to done so many Skype calls, so many flights to the client. You know, just in this short period of time that I've been in this new office, that you know, I've seen all of these different tools that are out there to be able to be productive when you're not in the same place. Yeah, Neil, you were going to say something. I just think that what um, you were just uh, kind of expanding on that. I think part of the future of the profession in general is um, not, we're not all going to be in the same location, right? I mean, uh, I think the recession and then coming out of that has uh, taught some people that, you know, you have to do that. I think the global, as we move more, even further into a global economy um, where architects are doing work all over the world. And uh, I think the, the technology that you mentioned, Evan, uh, exists and it needs to get a little better. We need to get a little better using it um, and just collaborating, having people work remotely, um, whether they're working for the same firm or for different firms or just um, consulting. Um, and I think, uh, you know, with the neat thing with tools like Dropbox and and you mentioned Skype, um, I think the future of the profession in general um, is gonna is gonna be more involved in in that sort of collaboration where people are not always in the same location. I think we see that a lot in the tech tech industry, um, where firms are completely virtual. They don't even have a main office, and, and so I think the the future of our profession is gonna start to it, it's moving that direction, and it's gonna keep probably moving. Will it completely? go away or or will will all offices go away i don't think so but uh but i think we're going to see more of that i think one of the downsides to the to that is that people get less and less experience in the field because one thing yeah. we can never forget is that the these buildings are built by people in the real world <laughs> and it, it we cannot forget that these things are still built by hand and i know cormac you described a future where things are 3d printed but but right now, I think with the 
tendency that firms have of sitting people in chairs so that they click more faster, uh, there is less and less people going out and actually seeing how these things go together. And we know that people are getting very little of that in school with a few exceptions to at places like, uh, you know, rural studio kind of places like that. But, but for the most part, it is a very digital thing. And I think that they're betting heavily on the future being of, of projects being built digitally as well. Um, you know, the Googleplex is going to be built by crab robots. And I mean, it's, it's like a fully automated system, but, but I think that something that one thing that I think, I guess I'll reminisce about is going to be the actually going to the field and seeing it built. I mean, that, yeah. <laughs> look at IDP. Those are the hardest hours to get. They still are for everybody <laughs> that I talk to. I don't have any CA hours. And it's like, I, I can't get them. I, I just can't even get them. I'm not going to get my license because I can't get these CA hours. Well, we right. need to make it happen. We, right? Well, I we mean, totally do. I, I agree with you on, on that. But I, it's, it's ridiculous that, that we, because we, I, 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 I totally see both sides of it. We need people to sit more and we need them to build more on the computer. And, and the trade-off is you don't get to go out and do that. Well, what's the... No. Uh, but it's What's up to least? us in the profession to make sure that that does happen. I mean, the the future of our profession uh, relies on it, right? I mean, how else are people going to learn how a building is built if they don't get out there and interact a little bit and get those opportunities? Yeah. Um, so I think those those things need to happen. The 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 challenge I think is that um, I think people get. Uh, a little impatient, you know, it may not happen in the first 12 months you work there or the, um, you know, if you're coming out of school, um, but you need to start pushing for that. And I think firms need to recognize that they need to mentor those uh, younger staff members and, and bring them along. I mean, everybody kind of does that to some extent. Now, I, 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 I bet I never worked for a firm with, you know, literally hundreds of people. Um, but in, in, I, at one point we, we, the, one of the firms I worked with did get over a hundred, but um, you know it was pretty commonplace that as you got a little uh, experience under your belt, as far as okay, I've I've done some drawings, I'm going to take you on a frame walk with me. You know, you don't say much, but you just you 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 observe yeah. and you look around and you maybe talk to the contractor off to the side a little bit while some decisions are being made, and that's how you learned. And you know, I don't see that really changing much, and and. Other than it probably needs to happen more because we do sit behind the computer more. Um, and because the lines, I know, Cormac, you, you've talked about this in the past where we're drawing lines on the computer, we're drawing uh, components, uh, you know, on the computer that uh, uh, they don't mean anything. Uh, where maybe when we were drawing by hand, if you put that line on the paper, you hopefully understood what that line was intending to mean. And, uh, and so I think that we, we need to, that needs to continue to happen and hopefully it, it still does. But I, I think, uh, something else I wanted to, to also mention, uh, on this episode is, um, over the next, well, uh, actually really this, this kind of fits into your time frame, uh, Evan, and it's at least in California, and this is kind of, again, kind of going to the future of the profession in general. Mm -hmm. But um, California is basically, I mean, they passed the law. We're going to be net zero on residential buildings in five years. Right. 
we're going to be net zero on commercial buildings in 15 years by 2030. Right. So I think the other part of the future of our profession uh, is going to be how do we make this happen? Because we're all kind of used to how we build and how we design today. And I think there's, there's a stopgap maybe with, uh, with PV and solar. But I think it, at some point in time, that's not going to be enough. I mean, the, the standards are getting so high, it's becoming more difficult. And, and this may not be necessarily true on the commercial side where you can do some commissioning and other things. But I think on the residential side, we're going to have a, a bit more challenge. But how do we take standard construction and make that net zero? So I think the challenge that architects have is how do we make this happen? And I think um, this is where getting to what you mentioned earlier about um, architects not, we just kind of sit back. I think we need to get out in front and, and we probably, there, it's, pro- it's happening, but we probably need to make it more so. Well, yeah, look at like solar decathlon and there, there's a lot of R&D going on. I think that's something though that kind of speaks that that's not the, that's the exception to the rule. Mm-hmm. There, there's not enough firms out there who have an R and D department, right? We're right. we're trying to do things the way that we've done them and make it go as smoothly is as that, possible. Is that R and D happening on the? Um, uh, I, I don't want to say supplier, but uh, on, on the vendor side. And, you know, the vendors that are supplying windows and doors and uh, materials, insulation, and um, are they the ones gonna, that are doing that R&D course, so yes. they can right. sell they us are. the material? Well, yeah, because that's they're going to have. Well, that's why they're doing it, right? Because because they know that we, we have to buy that stuff. So right. And so we're captive somewhat, audience. <laughs> exactly. And it goes back to what, you know, we were saying earlier is that, you know, we're just kind of somewhat sitting back and letting other people kind of help shape the future of the profession by being, you know, beholden to the software makers or the, you know, the um, manufacturers, manufacturers and things like that. And, I think and, that this is a huge opportunity for architects to actually exactly partner with those people and help make it happen right instead of there those those people need us just get, like get we need them the maker architect yes at least in, in at least in california the politicians are shaping the future of architecture <laughs> to a certain extent beyond you just know? the building code but with and you know uh, why at zero you know why because we weren't we aren't yep someone's gonna they're shaping it. it because we we haven't and we need to change that. We need to be the ones, yeah, you know, we're the experts minute, on wait building. Wait, 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 wait. I want to step back a second. We're, maybe we're not, but are the architects are not the ones building, right? We're not the clients. But we're the so experts. I understand building. that. But at the end of the day, it's the client, right? It's the client. Does the client want to make his building efficient? Does, I mean... The client is the one driving the train here. And this well, probably but, goes to another part of what's the future of architecture is how much do we get involved in the design build process? Do we or the developer con- process. Or the developer process. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. The developer process. Do we go out and get our contractor's license? I mean, some Absolutely. architects do. And others I know are doing it. And do we become the client? Is that the future of architecture? Is the future it, of Clients are not the answers us. to your problems. <laughs> but, you know, but, you know, you're always going to have to work with the client. You're always going to have to show them what 
what's right and wrong with, you know, why they okay. make this choice or that choice. You are the educator for the client. You need I to be the one that, to push them. But at the them. end of the day, the client's got so much money, right? And it's like, well, this would be better, but it's going to cost you more. But, you and know, it, it's they're going, okay, well, my budget's already blown and I don't have any more money. So I've got to go with the cheaper version. I don't care if it's not efficient or not. You know what? There's always the generic versions of the more expensive things that sometimes perform equally, if not sometimes better than the more expensive stuff. And that's it's just, why we put or equal in the specs. Ex- <laughs> well, yes, but we also do our due diligence. You know, if we're doing our due diligence and we're staying on top of and see, here's where we, it goes back full circle to this being, you know, kind of like handicapped by our limited knowledge of what we're using as the components from our building instead of helping drive these things components and design these components that you know okay so we want to design something and Pella window is what we're basing the performance on but somebody can't afford the Pella window so we've got to go and find another window that performs just as well as that one and use that window instead it 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 looks similar it's not quite the same style but performance wise and things like that because at the end of the day we still need to follow the performance standards right and so we need to educate ourselves and the client okay here's what we want here's how we want it to perform here's what we design it to but here's what you can afford it but we're the ones kind of showing them and teaching them and talking them through doing all of that stuff Hey. Rather than the guys who are just like, well, you know, I told you to just, you know, use Pella Windows. You're not using Pella, Pella Windows? Fine. I'm taking my ball and going home. You know, it's just, you know, we got to get past the, you know, oh, well, you know, I, I, I told them to use this. They didn't want to use this because they couldn't afford it. So, you know, it's not, it's out of my hands. Forget the out of my hands crap. We've got to show them that, you know, there are a multitude of different you know, things that can still do the job exactly the way we want it to. We just have to go through the effort of finding them and educating them on that and educating ourselves on that. So I I have a question for you or here, here's the million dollar idea. What I want the future of architecture, what I want to see is that the contractor, every time he does something that doesn't follow the plans, he gets like a shock or something right it's like the the plans like shock him or something like no no that's not no that's not following the plans the plans call it out over here not over here okay the episode title is the future is electric the future i i don't know (laughs) shocking perfect for halloween we need to find a way to um yeah that's being funny there but i mean we need to find a way to communicate better and i think cormac you were talking about it a little bit earlier and and maybe when the when we're not just issuing a set of two-dimensional plans that maybe you know because that's not communicating well enough because the the contractors oftentimes don't follow it and i mean for an example I've shown uh, on a project where to put the gable end vent, how far down it's supposed to be on the elevation, exactly where it's supposed to be. Did it get installed that way? Nope. Nobody paid attention. Turned 90 degrees the other way. Put it 
put it where they want feet it. lower. Yeah. I'm on site talking to the HVAC guys. And it's like, okay, guys, uh, where's the, you know, where are you wiring up the, uh, the thermostats, right? Uh, we don't know. Uh, we were thinking putting one over here, and uh, we're going to put one over in that room there. And I'm like, hmm, okay, did you look at the plans? What plans? Oh, yeah, here, <laughs> there are. They're, 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 they're right over here. They're pinned up on the wall, you know, the floor plan, the electrical plan in this case, where, where this stuff was called out. So we walk over there. And I'm like, oh, look, you see this little symbol? Yeah, that, that one, that's a thermostat. Oh, okay. Oh, so you're showing it right over here. Yes, I did. <laughs> and here's the thing that blew me away. When looking at the plan, there it is right on the wall. And the symbol for the thermostat is circled in red with a question mark. I'm like, oh, no, this is not good. So first off, there's a symbol legend within about three inches from this, <laughs> right on the same sheet, says exactly what that symbol means, and yet there's a circle with a question mark. Like, I don't know if, it, maybe it was like, maybe we don't need this one, I don't know. But the way I read it is, I don't know what that symbol is. Oh my goodness, wow, we, they can't even read the plans. So well, two-dimensional plans are maybe, well, I guess what I'm trying to get at, and I'm not trying to pick on contractors here, because... There's plenty of times I've looked at a set of plans. I'm like, what the hell is this? You know, or I, I can't figure it out, right? So nobody's perfect. I'm just trying to say, what's, the better, what's a better way? And then here's the future. What's a better way to communicate a set of building plans or a building you know, so that we can get it built? Is it obviously two-dimensional plans is how we've been doing it. Is something like a model better? Well. Three virtual reality, so the contractor puts on his goggles and go, oh, okay, yeah, I know it. Now I I understand what I'm supposed to build. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe that's you know where we Actually, could do it there and on the screen, and we see it, and then they see the same thing in the field. As somebody who's spent a lot of time in the field, and I still like the shot caller idea. Um, <clears throat> the future, especially to solve that issue, that particular issue is us being more accessible to the field. One of the things that we value so very little, and you just look at our con- our contracts and the way they're written, is the construction administration process. You know, we don't spend a lot of time in the field. We spend more time trying to solve issues of the field from our desk rather than being out there and being accessible and being on site more often. Now, it sounds like a time suck. It sounds like it's a non-profitable venture. But honestly, being out there and being able to talk to the guy and, you know, stand over a hole that somebody just dug and say, okay, well, we got a problem. You see that line right there? That's your sewer line. We're supposed to be putting a new sewer line in, but there's an existing sewer line. What do you want to do? You know, and you can't see that on a 2D RFI or, you know, <clears throat> virtual reality. You got to be out there in the field, hands in the dirt kind of thing. So, so, and so, so do we get well, contractors to wear little cameras like cops do on their shoulders? Uh, no, you get your ass off your desk and get out into the field. I agree, but 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 you're talking about a project. You, we know you've got a project in St. Louis, right? But you're in Baltimore. 
So that's not always going to happen. So let's use the tools that we have to kind of on the times where you can't be there. The tools we have is we have a local architect who will be, you know, working as our agent who is equally competent in the profession, especially in CA, to do a lot of the CA. And we're just going to be CA advisors and they're going to be the boots on the ground for us. I think what you're talking about, Cormac, is right. It's but and it doesn't matter who it is. I mean, yeah, it doesn't have to be you every time. But what, what the fundamental thing that needs to change is that architects need to consider themselves a part of the wider construction industry. Oh yeah, yeah, and not yeah. a separate thing where we do it here and you do your thing over there. We do it together, and it's a process that starts here and ends there. And there is a lot of back and forth in between. Because there is so much division yeah. in our field. I I could see a future that could be much brighter if those barriers were broken down. And we did write our contracts so that we were out there more. It, it yeah. would benefit everybody if we did yeah. that. Absolutely. It's this learned animosity, though. I don't know if how your um, programs worked, but as part of our program at Auburn, it was the College of um, architecture, design, and construction all together as one. You know, we um, and we went to some of the same classes, especially in our first few years, where contractors would take some early, you know, some introduction to architecture um, programs, and we would take all of our structures programs or, or classes would be with. Con, you know who will be the ultimate contractors, GCs and CMs. <coughs> Excuse me, and so we would work together. But if if the air about the way the architects and the contractor students worked, it was you know it was you stick to your own kind kind of thing. And I don't, I always, I don't think that that's true. I well, I think that that is true, but I think we do it. To people within our own profession. Oh, we do that. But, I mean, I've been to too many schools and seen that sort of separation. You know, like It happens in our separation. own offices, though. I mean, it, oh, absolutely. it's crazy. And, you know, so that's really, if we want to talk about what the real future that's of something that has to change is Holy the crap. change in communication, the change in, I don't know, the arrogance. Or the, you know, it's, it's, because you you said it best, we have got to view ourselves as part of, and they've got to view us as part of the construction process. You know, we, we're always looked at as, oh, you just, you know, draw the pretty pictures and the contractor really builds it. We're seen as optional. Yeah. You know, exactly. And, but that's us too. We, but we you know what? I tell you, from yeah. the residential side, we are definitely the option and oftentimes the expensive option. I don't need that architect and right. the contractor to move that wall. And, yeah. you know, and sometimes that's true. I, I've had plenty of times where I've met with residential clients, you know, small uh, addition or just some small remodel. And I'm like, ah, you know, you don't need me. Do, do, you know, the, do X and Y and the contractor can do that and you're done, right? I mean, we're not designing anything fancy here. So, um, and it meets the needs, right? The need, it's, it's always the client's needs. What does the client need? Does he, do they need something, um, you know, beyond what 
uh, just solving a simple problem? Maybe not. So, uh, you know, sometimes we don't need, we're not needed. Well, other than the being the intermediary between the client and the contractor, um, I mean, what we've said in virtually every example, including the most fantastical one that I was given about, you know, the... 3D world of of architecture to what all of the other examples we've given is ultimately we've kind of summarized it as the future of architecture is a de- more getting back to the design build process because being fully integrated into the build process and having the build process fully integrated into the design process is really the future of it. You know, whether it's it's more scale. Yeah. I I would say it's more master builder, not design build. (laughs) Well, I I would say it's not because I think that's sort of the same thing though. No, I don't think it is. I think design build still has a complete separation of entities that are adversarial. I, I don't think I think it I sounds great, but I don't we, think it actually works like that. Well, when the master builder, let's just throw um, you know Wright or somebody out there, when they were out on site, who typically was the one that hired the contractor? It was the architect who hired the contractor. So they were technically but in being design the build. GC. The architect works for the contractor. They're hired by the contractor to fulfill the architecture portion. Yeah, you know, I I actually have been in a different design build situation where we helped hire the contractor and the contractor worked for us. And then there's this, you know, then there's the whole process of like CM, CM at risk and all these other ones where it's something similar to that. And, you know, maybe that's where our role is, is we're shifting to be, we should shift into the role of CM rather than design CM. You know, we're both the design and the construction manager where we, I don't know, I'm trying to I think on the fly about, you know. Yeah, it's tough. Because <laughs> if you think about it, any experience that I've ever had with CMs in the past, I've helped do their work as much as they've done their work. So, and a lot of times we think, well, you know, what do we need them for if I'm doing their job for them? Um, and, they're, and they're thinking the same thing about us. Maybe it's an integrated process where... It's, uh, you know, design and construction. Um, you know, we've had, you know, lots of friends of the show and, you know, friends that we've talked to on Twitter that have kind of voiced their opinion about there being the back to the master builder or the integrated architect CM kind of process. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I think we could go on and on and on and on, no, but we, we should wrap it up for tonight. It's getting long. You guys okay with that? Yeah, yeah. Sure. Take us out, Neil. All right. Well, if you have questions or comments, please visit the website at arcaspeakpodcast.com. There you'll find links to our individual Twitter accounts and the Arcaspeak Podcast Facebook page so you too can join in on the conversation. And also, just a reminder, if you have an inspiring tale to tell, call the Arcaspeak Podcast hotline at 415-484-8496 and we'll share it on the show. We've been saying that for a long time. We need some people. Where's Jess? Jess Stafford, you, you've called in a few times. We need Jess to call back in and get this rolling again. So uh, if you have some thoughts on what the future of architecture is, technology-wise uh, or just housing-wise or energy-wise, uh, let us know. Call in 415-484-8496, and, uh, and we'd love to share it on the show. Hey, something else is next show. We'll be getting back together with Alice Kim from 
uh, JFAK down in LA to talk about the post MDC thoughts and wrap up. Um, so if, if anybody who listens went to the MDC, give us a call at that number and tell us your thoughts or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, we'd love to hear what you thought of the Monterey design conference. Uh, we had a great time when we were there. So I can't wait to talk to her about that and share kind of what it was like and, and what happened at, in Monterey a couple weeks ago. The world of architecture needs more MDCs. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was good. All right, everyone, stay subscribed and uh, thanks for listening. Good night. Good night. Good night. Oh, you can bet, I know